you join me as we pray, as we come before God's word today? Lord God, we turn to you in your word. Uh, we want to hear you speak to us today. Uh, Lord, we need it. Uh, Lord, you are our good shepherd and you've promised that your people can hear your voice. And so we ask today that you would help us to hear your voice. Lord, we, your church, together need to hear it uh, in this country and in this time and in this city. And so, Lord, speak to your people today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going through a series in the book of Daniel. And right the way through the book of Daniel, it speaks quite directly, I think, to the fears of people, the troubled times that we're in. And often speaks toward outward things that we're worried about. Maybe the state of the world. Maybe the wars and rumours of wars that tend to trouble us when we turn on the news at night. Or to our phones in the morning perhaps. But today the lens is pointed inward. Today the lens is pointed to the state of God's people. One of the... uh, Troubling, perhaps, things we see in our text today is that the real reason, the root cause, the true infection as to why God's people are not in a right relationship with him, that their country is not established as it ought to be in 600 BC when this was written. We must remember God is speaking to a people who are in exile. They're living in Babylon. They're not where they should be. The real root reason is their own sin. It's not Babylon's fault. It's not the state of the world around them, the tumultuous up and down of human kingdoms that are at fault. It is their fault. It is their sin. Now, I want us to look uh, just for a moment at our current state of religion and particularly Christianity in Australia today. If you are conversant with the news recently, you may have noticed a trend, particularly in the last 30 years, but I would say I've seen a lot of this in the past few months. The trend is like this. In the current census, you might have noticed the swift decline of Christianity and the swift increase of secularism and of other religions. In fact, I just read a news article this week that was saying other religions are on the rise in Australia and Christianity is on the decline. No religion is on the rise in Australia, but the long-standing traditions of Christianity are disappearing quickly from amongst us. Even just this week, I read that the Anglican Church in Australia has split over the issues of same-sex marriage and liberalism, those who want to hold to the authority of God's word and those who refuse to and are worried about what society and culture thinks and so bow to the culture. And this happens time and time again. Almost every other week I hear of various deconversion stories of people regularly turning away from God, though they once held the Christian faith as being important to them. And unfortunately, almost every other week, there is a Christian leader who falls through some kind of shameful act, whether using money badly, having an affair, 
you know, treating people badly, abusing people. We see that the Royal Commission is going on constantly. And then there's churches that treat their pastors badly as well. I hear about that too on the grapevine. So there's, there's internal division. Now, there is a trend and it's one after another. The church is in a bad state in this country. Let's be honest for a moment. Let's be really honest. The church is in a bad state in this country. And I want to answer the question, why? Why is the church in a bad state in this country? It says in our text that God's people have become a byword. We don't use that term very often in our uh, culture today, but the term byword means a point of derision. God's people in the day of Daniel had become a point of derision. Look at them. Look how pitiful and poor they are. They, they have been taken from their own land into another land. You know, they who worship supposedly the God over the whole earth, he doesn't even look after them. Or well, that's what they supposedly thought, the people around them. And I would say, look at the church today. When people say the word Christian or evangelical or Bible-believing or traditional marriage, those words are often words of contempt from our culture. Interestingly, though, this is not the first time uh, that this has happened. In fact, in uh, the mid-19th uh, century, so the 1800s, uh, there was a time of steep spiritual decline, uh, particularly amongst Western countries. So Western countries traditionally had had Christianity at the forefront, but it was a, during a time of steep spiritual decline in many of these countries, and particularly in the sort of leading cities of the world. London was one of them. And in 1854, a 19-year-old man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to London and was called to be a preacher. But he became convinced that the spiritual state of the church was not because the world had declined and the world was against the church, was not just because you know, all these external influences and these revolutions that were going on around the world and the troubled times that we're in. He was convinced that the root problem was this, that God had been hiding his face from his people because of their sins. What did Spurgeon mean by this? He meant that all the infrastructure was there. There was more churches in London than in many other cities in the world at least buildings. They had clergy. They had paid professional clergy, heaps of them. They had all the church structures and support from culture and society. I mean, the Church of England was set up and yet there was no spiritual power in that country. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was convinced that there was no knowledge, no talent or zeal that could change things. He was convinced that if God continued to withhold his face from his people, then nothing could be done for extending the kingdom of God. But there was hope, and this is what he said. Yet, brethren, this can be done. We will cry to the Lord until he reveals his face again. All we want is the Spirit of God. Dear Christian friends, go home and pray for it. Give yourselves no rest until God reveals himself. Do not tarry where you are. Do not be content to go on in your everlasting jog trot as you have done. Do not be content with a mere round of formalities. Awake, O Zion. Awake, awake, awake. 
the real root issue with the state of the church in this country is not external, but internal. And we see this very clearly in Daniel's confession. In fact, there's several things I want us to learn today from the confession that Daniel makes on behalf of his people. The first thing I want you to learn this morning from the confession of Daniel is that reading the scriptures seriously moves God's people to a place of confession. Reading the scriptures, that is the Bible, seriously moves God's people to a prayer of confession. I want you to notice in the text, verses 1 and 2, that Daniel had been reading the Bible. Daniel had been reading from the prophet Jeremiah. And he discerned that it was 70 years. What does that mean? Well, in Jeremiah 25, this should be on your screen for you, uh, verse 11 and 12, this is what Daniel would have been reading. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. You see, what had happened by Daniel's time in Babylon is that God had made a promise that though God's people had sinned, they had worshipped other gods. They had done many evil things when they were located in Jerusalem and in Israel. So God would send them away. He put a limit to his judgment upon them, 70 years. He put a limit. And he said, at the end of that 70 years, the kingdom that conquered you, the kingdom that burned the city of Jerusalem, that kingdom itself will end. Itself will be destroyed. And when we're at in the book of Daniel, we have just heard that uh, Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the last king of the Babylonian kingdom, was killed. He was killed and the next kingdom rose up, the kingdom of the uh, the Medes and the Persians led by Darius. Daniel has realised that 70 years are up. That God has shown something incredible, which he promised beforehand in the scriptures, that God's enemies would be destroyed. And the kingdom of Babylon was taken over by the next superpower, the Medo-Persian Empire. So God is fulfilling his promises, yet there's something more to come. And Daniel would have been reading this as well from Jeremiah 29. And it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to, you my plan, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now that one hasn't happened yet. The first one has happened, right? God's enemies, the nation, uh, the kingdom of Babylon has been destroyed, has been taken over by another nation. God has judged them. But God's people have not yet been restored to their land. Why? Why aren't things like they ought to be? Notice in that text it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's people hadn't done that yet. 
You see, the timing was right. It had been about 70 years. The signs in history were right. God's enemies were being destroyed. The enemies of God's people were being destroyed. But God's, the heart of God's people had not yet changed. And here is Daniel recognising this. Daniel realised that there was one thing that remained for God's people to do, and that was to confess their sin and repent. There was one thing that remained, that Israel would be whole again, that God's people would confess their sin and repent. In my um, childhood, I used to live in country Victoria, uh, in a place, uh, near a place called Darlesford, actually. It was quite cold there in winter. The coldest it got to was about minus seven. And every now and then, when it got really cold, uh, the pipes would freeze. So the turn on the tap and the water wouldn't come out. Now, interestingly, all the infrastructure was there, right? We had, the, we had a tank uh, set sort of high above the house, so it would gravity feed down to the... Uh, through the pipes. Uh, all the pipes were there. The tap was functioning. Everything, and there was water in the tank that wasn't frozen. So everything was in place. All the infrastructure was there, yet I'd turn on the taps and because the pipes themselves had frozen water in them, the water could not get through. And it seems to me in our current day and age that we have all the infrastructure for the church to succeed, do we not? We have the Bible in our own language, which is not something to be taken for granted, let me tell you. People have died and their blood has been spilt to get the Bible in their own language in history. We have this beautiful building. We have beautiful buildings all across this country and across this city to go. And we have peace and prosperity and comfort in our land. We have unprecedented access to unreached people. Unprecedented. This very message is going out, could go out all across the world. The people could hear it and hear the good news about Jesus. We have every bit of infrastructure we could possibly need. Do we not? We're not persecuted on the most part in this country. We have little to fear when it comes to speaking the truth about Jesus and of God's word. Minuscule compared to other countries where you will literally be imprisoned and killed if you speak openly about your faith or try and convert someone. And yet, it seems that the pipes are blocked. It seems that God's power is not coming through. You see, what God had revealed to Daniel through the reading of Scripture is that he, on behalf of his people, needed to pray. He needed to confess their sin before God because that was the great blockage. When you really read God's word, I'm not talking about just habitually, which is good and important to do, but when you really read it, when you really look at it and go, is this for us and are willing to believe God's word, then it moves you to confess your sins in prayer before God like Daniel. That's my first point. Reading the scriptures seriously moves God's people to prayer of confession. My second point is this. Confession means taking prayer seriously. Look in verse 3 on your text. It says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
This guy is praying with all seriousness, is he not? I mean, people can pray, can't they? You know, people say their prayers. You might pray around dinner time or lunchtime or if you're you know, really devoted, even breakfast. You know, you might uh, hear people pray publicly at church. You might pray when there's a crisis going on in your life. You might pray at various times for various things. Yet there is a difference between saying your prayers and really praying. There is a great difference. And Daniel set his whole person here to prayer. It says he pleaded for God's mercy. It said he put on sackcloth and ashes. He fasted. He went without food because he wanted God to hear. And he didn't want to be distracted by any comforts of the world. And so he bowed his whole body in humility before God and really prayed. I want you to notice something else, and it's not obvious in our text. Daniel's in his 80s, roughly, by this time. In his 80s. He's an old man. And yet, God had moved him through the reading of Scripture to really pray. Now, I've said before that this uh, book of Daniel has much to say, much to say about serving God later in life. And I tell you, one of the most important works for God that you can do later in life is to become a person of prayer. And I thank God that I know many people, many saints who are moving towards their 70s and 80s and perhaps even 90s and have become people of prayer. Because that is where the battle is fought and won. And that is what Daniel is doing here on the 70th year the year when God's people are supposed to be restored and yet they have not yet turned their heart to him. There was an Australian uh, farmer uh, who was working in the 1980s His name in a place called Niger in Africa. His name was Tony Renato. They used to call him the crazy white farmer for the first couple of years because he'd been working with the... Um, the locals there as an agronomist trying to improve the agriculture because there was a, a drought and uh, deforestation and the, in, the um, deserts were creeping over good and previously fertile farmland. And this was going on and on and on and they couldn't work out what to do. And so this Christian man, Tony Renato, felt compelled by God to go somewhere else and use his skills in agriculture to help these people. And yet, for all, and he was trying to encourage people to plant more trees, that they needed to uh, be interested in biodiversity to make sure that they didn't just pillage the land as they sought to reap a harvest from it. And yet, it did not work. And so, for two years, he tried and he failed, and he was about to give up as he looked across the desert and the drought sweeping the land and he was standing on a desolate road and he decided that he needed to pray because he had nothing else left and he prayed and he really prayed and he looked and he saw just a bush poking up from the ground and he thought, what is this bush? It's dangerous when you see a bush in the Bible. He said, what is this bush? So he walked over to the bush and he saw that it was actually 
shooting from a, a plant that had previously been cut down. What would happen was the locals would, um, as part of the deforestation to, cr to create farmland, would cut off the shoots of these plants because they would regularly pop up suckers. And he thought, there's the answer. There's the answer. And so rather than planting new trees, they would just leave the existing trees that had the suckers underneath the ground to grow. And over the next 30 years, the farmland in that country has been astronomically transformed from what was once desert into fertile land. Why? Because one man really prayed. I want you to notice in our text that Daniel was already a man of prayer. He already, says earlier, prayed three times a day. In fact, he got busted for it and was thrown into the lion's den because he refused to stop praying. And yet here, Daniel prays differently. He'd been a man of prayer for himself perhaps and for his nation, but here he prays differently. He really comes before God, recognising the situation that they're in and confesses the sins of himself and of his people. And so let me ask you something. This could change your life. It's a scary thing to do. When was the last time you really prayed? I'm not talking about saying your prayers this morning. When's the last time you really prayed? You said, God, I know that I've sinned and I've messed up. Will you forgive me? Will you make the work of Jesus real to me again? When's the last time you really prayed for someone else? Like you really did. It meant something. I was chatting to someone just this week. I said, it's just interesting how a minute of real prayer can be completely different to hours of saying your prayers. And that is what happened here. So confession means taking prayer seriously. The third thing I want us to learn from the text is that confession means taking personal responsibility for the sins of God's people. Confession means taking personal responsibility for the sins of God's people. Do you notice in the text, and it starts in verse 5, Daniel says, we, we have sinned and done wrong. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Again and again and again, he uses this word, we. Now, Daniel was a faithful man, right? He stood up. He, he wouldn't bow to the pressures of the culture around him, even when his life was on the line, and yet he says, we have sinned. We need humility to see that our sins are corporate, not just individual. One of the things we don't understand very well in uh, modern day individualistic countries is corporate sin. We get our own sins, but we forget that we are part of a culture, we're part of a church, we're part of a people. And we are part of the sins of the church and the people and the culture. We forget. Daniel did not forget. C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, commenting on this text, he says, So my brethren, when we have confessed our own sins and have found mercy, we should begin to be intercessors for others. We should make confessions for the sins of our families, for the sins of our city, for the sins of our country. If no longer we 
if no longer need, we plead for salvation for ourselves because we have obtained it. Let us give full force of our prayers to the benefit of others. The calling for God's people is to become intercessors. That is what a true prayer of confession is about. That's the third point. Fourth, confession is being totally honest about our spiritual state. Confession is being totally honest about our spiritual state. Imagine you were to go to the doctor and you went to the doctor and you, know, you get the blood tests and you, know, you, you go in and they... You, know, you take the blood, you get the phone call, come in, we need to talk. You go in, they talk to you and it's bad news. All right? It's bad news. No one wants to have that conversation with the doctor. And then, but what if you decide, well, we're just going to, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to ignore it. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to carry on with my life. The doctor prescribes treatment. I'm just not, I'm not going to go ahead with it because it doesn't matter. I'm going to just keep going and doing what I'm doing because if I ignore it, it'll go away. That doesn't work, does it? You see, God's prophets had been speaking to God's people for a long time about the state of their hearts and the spiritual state of the people. For a long time, God had been speaking to them and yet they had not listened. The text, it says, verse 6, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. God has given them the diagnosis, and they have not listened. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. God has done good to his people. He has warned them. You keep going down this path, you're going to destroy yourselves. You're going to look terrible in front of the world. You keep going this way, it's going to go badly for you. And yet God's people had not listened. They had ignored what he had said. Interestingly though, and this is, this is unique to this chapter in Daniel chapter 9, the uh, word Lord in capitals, L-O-R-D, which is actually there for the name Yahweh. Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God, is only mentioned in this chapter in the book of Daniel. It's the only place. And it, during this first 19 verses, it's mentioned six times out of seven in this chapter. Why is Daniel changing the way he speaks towards God when he is confessing his sin. Because he is appealing to God's covenant love. The Lord is the name that only the people who know that God is their redeemer uses. That God is the one who saved them. That God is the one who brought them out of Egypt. Though they were slaves and been essentially, um, they were under a genocidal maniac, the Pharaoh, who was trying to wipe out their nation. God delivered them. The, the Lord was their God. That he was always faithful to his covenant. Daniel is calling on the Lord, the faithful covenant God, 
to do something because he is full of mercy, because he is a God of forgiveness, which he mentions, that he is a God full of righteousness. That is why he would call upon him. Now, when you pray, when you pray, whom do you come to? Who do you turn to when you pray? Do you turn to that one up there? Do you turn to perhaps this figure who you think might run the universe, could possibly be interested in you, but you're not too sure? Or do you turn to your covenantal God who spilt his blood for you? Because the Bible tells us we actually have a new covenant spilt by the blood of Jesus, which promises us unhindered access to God. The Bible tells us that that person is Jesus Christ and in his name we have access to the very throne room, personal access to God's ear. We don't have to do any incantations. You don't have to be in a special place. You just need to speak in the name of Jesus. There is no other name that we can call to in heaven. There is no other name under which man can be saved. There is no other person whom said he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. There is no other people besides God's people who are called by his name. God is calling. God is calling his people to speak to him honestly about their spiritual state, but to come in the name of Jesus. You know, uh, it was a few years ago, in fact, it was probably, oh gee, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, I was at a a service uh, in another church here in Adelaide. And during the service, there was an open time for prayer, you know, so they just put the mic up the front and if you wanted to come and pray or to say something, you could. It's a little bit dangerous to do that, isn't it, in the church? Because you never know what someone's going to say. They can say anything and then the pastor's got to get up and say, look, that's not quite right and, and I don't want to do that. So anyway, they did it in this um, church service and, and I was thinking, I've got to say something because I had this burn in my heart because I had realised that there's a problem in the church. And I was like... 19, 15 years ago, it was 19. And this was the scripture that came to mind, just came to my mind. This is from Revelation chapter 3. And it says, To the angel of the church of La- in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love are approved and disciplined, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I thought, man, the state of the church 
in, that I was in, the state of the church in this country is like this. We're wealthy, we've got everything we need, we could say we need nothing and yet we are poor, pitiful, wretched, naked because where is the power of God in our time? And I tell you, 15 years later, I still think the same. 15 years later, we need to be zealous and repent because the church is getting worse. Let's be honest. Fifth, confession acknowledges God's judgment on his own people. The challenging thing about this, one of the challenging things about this text is it tells us that God's people were sent into exile by God. He was being faithful to his covenant. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you will notice that there are blessings. If people are faithful to their God, they'll be blessed. They will have unusual blessings, right? Uh, they won't have, the, the women won't have miscarriages. They'll have exceptional harvests in the land. Even the, the livestock won't have miscarriages. They'll be rich and prosperous and all the nations of the world will look upon Israel and go, that nation is favoured by their God and hold them up in honour. And that happened. Was that particularly during the reign of Solomon? That happened. All the nations of the, of the earth looked to Israel and said, there's something special about this nation. It must be their God. And yet if Israel was unfaithful, if they sinned against God, if they continued in their idolatry and chasing after other gods and chasing after other things, he would curse them. And if they, if they kept going down that path in order to correct and turn them around, he would allow bad things to happen to them. To the point, if they kept going down that path, they would be removed from the land they so treasured. And so that is what has happened to them. It says, verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Everything that God had said would happen has happened. So God is being faithful to his promises by allowing his people to be derided by the nations. Imagine that. Imagine that. The fascinating thing about this, and Daniel alludes to it, and I've just spoken it very briefly before, though Israel knows all this, though they realise that this has happened, it says, uh, second half of verse 13, yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Though they've come under the judgement of God, though things have gotten really bad, they still haven't realised that it's their sin that is the root cause. They still haven't realised. Now, this is a little bit dangerous for me to say, but I think I need to say it. The state of the church in this country is a result of the sin of the church in this country. I've got to say it. Because I think it's true. And it's not going to change until we repent. Until we confess our sin. That we have taken for granted the ease and prosperity of this nation. And we have absorbed it and taken it on as our idols. We've got all the infrastructure 
We had everything we could possibly need. And yet, where is the power of God amongst his people? There's a difference between feeling sorry for the state of the church in this country, which I find we often do. We feel sorry for it. Oh, Christians are being treated badly and being made to sign up to these, you know, diversity policies at work. You know, I've got to put my personal pronouns at the end of my uh, email signature. Oh, Christians are being treated badly because, you know, they talk about us in not nice ways in the news. You know, people who used to be Christians aren't Christians anymore. There's not many people. You know, we just we go on and on and on and on in our hearts feeling sorry for the state of things but there's a difference between being sorry for things being bad and repenting for our sin there is a clear difference and the difference is here in the text and the difference is here in our land the church we have sinned we have not honored god as we should we have loved comfort and prosperity and ease more than god We fear telling people about Jesus, though we hardly would get persecuted for it, far more than those in other countries where the church is exploding and they're getting thrown into prison day after day for telling people about Jesus. And the churches are getting burned down. What's the problem? The problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. Point six, confession leads to petition for the great mercy of God. I want you to notice from verse 16. Daniel calls upon God to move because he is a God of righteous acts, like the Exodus. He has saved his people before. Would he do it again? Then it goes higher. God, would you save us For the sake of the name of your people. We are called by your name. We are Israel. We are God's own people. We are the people of Yahweh. Could we not say the same? We are Christians, the people of Christ. For we are the people that bear your name. Higher. But then even higher again. Daniel goes higher. He says, Lord, for your own sake. Turn your face upon your people. For your own sake, would you do it? Because you are God and there is no other. He points to the sanctuary, the place where offerings for sin are made and where God's people come into right relationship with him. And Daniel is in Babylon. There is no sanctuary in Babylon. But he says, Lord, look to your sanctuary. Look to the place of sacrifice. Would you do something there? Turn your face toward us. Now we have a God who came to us when we didn't come to him. We have a God who took the turned face of God himself on a cross for the sins of his people. When Jesus was put upon a cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was in that place, God the Father was turning his face away from God the Son because God the Son was taking the consequence of our sin upon himself. We have this great promise that the God who would go to the cross for us is utterly willing 
utterly willing, because he has paid for our sins unto death, he's utterly willing to turn his face toward us in mercy. There is no more merciful act the world has ever seen than that. An undeserving people, a people who, while we were still weak at the right time, that Christ would die for the ungodly. We have a God who would do that for us. And so why would we not turn to him? Last, seventh. Repentance asks God to delay not for his promise of restoration. Confession asks God to delay not for his promise of restoration. We see this in verse 19. At the beginning of the chapter, Daniel turns his face towards the Lord. But now he asks that God would turn his face toward his people. He's put his finger on the root problem. He's realised the cause. He's not dealing with the symptoms anymore. He's on the issue itself and that is, Lord, we need you to turn your face back upon your people. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Daniel is asking that what was desolate would change solely. The only thing he wants is that God would turn his face back upon his people. That's the big thing. That's the main thing. That's the only thing that he seeks after. And if God could do it for Israel, which he did, he can certainly do it for us. I think this is a wonderful thing to pray. Two words, delay not. It's taken so long, Lord. Delay not. What about that family member, that son or that daughter, that nephew or that niece, that mum or that dad, that brother or that sister who doesn't know Jesus? Delay not. What about the state of the church here? Delay not. What about the people we witness to, we invite to church? Maybe you're one of those people, I'm glad you're here, that hasn't yet put their faith in Jesus. Delay not. What about a country whom Christ died for, whom are increasingly opposed to the message about him? Delay not. You know, um, I mentioned Charles Spurgeon going to London in 1854 and what he had put his finger on was the core issue at the time. Well, in 1856... Just two years later, God did something. Spurgeon recalls it uh, a few years later. In fact, many years later, what happened in that year of 1856. He says, What prayer meetings we had. Shall we ever forget Park Street, those prayer meetings, when I felt compelled to let you go without a word from my lips because the Spirit of God was so awfully present that we felt bowed toward the dust. Have you been in a meeting where God's spirit feels so awfully present that you can't even speak? And what listening there was at Park Street when we scarlet had air enough, so hardly had air enough to breathe. The Holy Spirit came down like showers which saturate the soil till the clods are ready for the breaking. God was moving in the midst of his people. And it was not long before we heard on the right and on the left the cry, what must we do to be saved? When this man and this church came to 
uh, so this man in this church were in 1854, they'd realised the place was in a sorry state. Though the infrastructure was there, God was not present and moving amongst his people. And it wasn't God's fault because God wants to, right? The people needed to turn back to him and seek his face again. And yet, by 1856, over 1,000 people were converted and baptised in that church just two years later. And I tell you, God can do it again. So we pray together, delay not. We pray together, Lord Jesus, come. We pray together because what is the point of being here? What is the point of doing just traditional religion week in, week out, unless we see a great move of God come upon us? So let us seek that together. Will you pray with me? Our Father, Lord, I'm very concerned that in the last 15 years, I don't think much has changed. And yet, and yet you have shown us your great willingness to come to us in our sin by sending your Son. And yet I think we've taken that for granted. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. But we want to be a church who really lives for you, who are changed by your word. And so I ask for you to do something to us into our hearts, change us so that we don't just talk about it, we don't just say our prayers, but that we really turn to you, the living God. Your word says that you will do it if we seek you with a whole heart. And so, Lord, grant to us a whole heart, even this morning, even now. Lord, work in your church, we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen.